Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We need your support. The Tortoise Shack relies entirely on you to keep the show on the road. Mics on, lights on and conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. The simplest way to do that is to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the top of the pod right now. So while you're listening, give us the 90 seconds it'll take you to click in, find the level that suits your budget and help keep this show on the road. It is the easiest bit of activism you can do and you'll get a ton of additional content including lots of exclusives, all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed and they're entirely plea free. So not only will you be helping keeping these microphones on, you'll be giving yourself the gift of not having to listen to me beg, but beg I must. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. Enjoy the show. <laughs> Okay, so welcome everyone um, to our Reboot Republic live podcast panel discussing the investor funds, buying up our homes and housing and how can we get affordable housing. Really delighted um, to have a fantastic panel tonight. Killian Woods from the Sunday Business Post who broke the story on Bellcamp Manor um, and succeeded in keeping the story up. Um, and looking forward to hearing a bit about that and what happened. Um, and we also have Ashling Hederman from the Community Action Tenants Union, Hugh Brennan, O'Coolon, um, not-for-profit housing developer and builder, and Alfonso Benilla from Maramoto Architects, um, and also housing campaigner, activist. Um, so I'm delighted to have it. We also have a great uh, audience here as well, and delighted to have you all with us. And if you want to put questions and answers, you can um, in the chat, absolutely. And we'll put them to our panel um, and uh, we'll try and keep Lorcan Sir as much as possible out of it. But given that we've given him such abuse already, he, we'll have to give him time uh, to come on at some point. But um, to get on to the topic of this evening, what we want to do is discuss just where... Um, where we're at, because it is um, three years now, um, almost three years since the first big story broke about investor funds buying up housing in Ireland. And of course, the, the story of investor funds or real estate funds in Ireland is longer than three years. Um, we need to go back. We're now a decade of 10 years of the real estate investor housing experiment in Ireland, and I call it an experiment because it, to a certain extent it feels like Ireland is being experimented upon as a test case of, well, let the investor funds provide the main source of new housing supply and let's see what happens. We know that the investor funds were brought in here initially by NAMA and the Fine Gael-led government to buy up what were called toxic loans um, off the bad banks. The investor funds aren't an accident. They were a key strategy for both recovering the Irish economy, but also for developing housing in Ireland. When the Irish government over the last 10 years took the decision that rather than trying to promote affordable housing delivery, keep the housing system affordable, that they went with the real estate funds. And it's going to be interesting to discuss, you know, what has this fallout been and can we reduce their involvement? Do we want to do that? Obviously, I believe we clearly do and others do. Um, but in the interests of facilitating a panel discussion with Killian, we have to leave the question hang there. Do we really want them or not? Um, so, listen, I am actually going to go to Killian first. Killian, in terms of Belcamp Manor, maybe you could outline what exactly happened there and um, particularly then how the story almost was forced off the headlines, but how you managed to keep it alive. So, yeah, it's, it's remarkably similar to what maybe people remember from Mullen Park and Maynooth a few years ago. It's, it's where the piece is about pointing out a trend in the housing market that initially when we were pointing out in 2021, the Business Post, pointing about homes that were on the open market were then bulk bought by an investment fund. That happened in, in May 2021 at Mullen Park and Maynooth and in, in many different cases. And as I said, Rory, well, Mullen Park just happened to be the one that caught people's attention. This was happening for a long, long time before that, that, you know, large parts of wholesale housing estate, large parts of housing estate were bought up in single transactions that were on the open market. 
2021, new rules are brought in. Let's be clear, the immediate measure is stamp duty, and we'll get to the planning measure maybe later. The immediate measure was to hike stamp duty to 10% instead of 1% mm. to make sure that it was nearly prohibitive for funds as a deterrent to, to bulk buy homes. Just make it more expensive for a single entity to buy homes than it would be an individual occupier. Now, that was 2021 May when all that was brought in. Fast forward to 2024 now, and the beginning of the oil for the end end of last year, rather than 2024, December 2023, um, a bunch of homes were on were open on the open market and in Belcamp Manor. It's a housing estate in Dublin 17, and they were the, and a, a fund we now know, the investment arm of Deutsche Bank, um, went in and bought them uh, bought them wholesale off off, off the market. So. The, the way what happened was originally the homes were launched to the market in um le, in twenty in twenty late twenty twenty two was the whole was the those forty six homes were launched to market by by the developer and then the developer since done an interview with the currency to and, and gave me the details myself as well uh, about why they did that they said that there was the market fit the bottom of the market fell out when the, when there was changes to central bank mortgage rules about how much people could borrow that made the they said that there was there wasn't much appetite in the market to close sales in the in those coming months and they were they needed to complete the sale and that's how the sale ended up happening to deutsche bank's investment arm instead of going to individual occupiers that they were showing people around the around the estate but there was no sales and finalized and that's why they were sold to uh, deutsche bank's investment arm instead and that's where we're at now it's just years later the government put in place measures trying to stamp out or make it make it a significant for funds to pull back homes and the practice is still happening um in three years later and just on that, in terms of this stamp duty, because we saw the motion brought forward by Sinn Féin and the Social Democrats to the Dáil um, yesterday around increasing stamp duty, do you think um, that the government's 10% stamp duty has effectively not worked and that um, if it did increase, would that have any impact? Yeah, and that's that's I think where you get to the the, the nub of the issue is whether whether ten percent is enough or not, and and how we're kind of arguing over whether it should be ten percent, whether it should be Sinn Fein saying seventeen percent. They've been saying that for a long time. It should be seventeen percent stamp duty on any entity, whether that's the property investor, individual landlord buys more than ten homes in a year. Um, it's kind of it's kind of nonsense to talk over the percentage, right? Like like I'm trying to pull up here. Like Michael Martin said when he was tee shot in 2021 that the move to go from one percent stamp duty to ten percent was so. Um, would, that would mean investment funds would mean the entities could not compete with first time buyers. So th- their intention is to make sure that they cannot compete with first time buyers. Darrell Bryan said very simply, it's very same, maybe a bit watered down language more. That dis- it's about disincentivizing the bulk buying of homes by investment funds. Um. They sound like they want to completely stamp it out. They, they're like the way that Mio Martin there said, like could not compete with first-time buyers. They want to make sure they could not. That's a they want it to be zero percent. They don't want the stamp duty rate to be like a revenue generator, tax generator for them. They want to stamp it out. So I hear Kira Keena Collins propose hundred percent, and I don't really see how that doesn't align with what the government should want. Like I don't know if they, you can't st- completely prevent investment funds. Uh, on my understanding, from buying houses full stop. You can't prevent anyone from buying property. But w- why not increase it to a massively prohibitive rate? Five, five, I don't know, five, I'm percent something that they 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 wanted. Milan Martin has said he wants them to stop this happening full stop. Not that they want to like, reduce it to only a couple of hundred homes. They want to stop it full stop. So we're arguing whether 10% or 70% is enough. It should be a rate that's so prohibitive that it you can't even entertain the notion of buying them. Like that, that that's not my view. That's that, that should that's the yeah. That's a, that to interrogating what they're saying. That's what it well, should it, be. Yeah, it does come back to the question: if they've bought a, a you know bulk bought a housing estate, then clearly the stamp duty hasn't worked. Yeah, and I know, and, and their comeback is that there've been 125 household tra- property transactions since May 2021, and um, in that's the meantime when the stamp duty rate for imposing on funds was in place, and in that time the 10% stamp duty rate is only applied to about, about 1,200, which would mean it's a it's a small portion of the market. Again, they say they want to stamp it out by their by their base and their comments from 2021. Any homes is is, is not acceptable. 1,200 is not acceptable, but it's also in a way, it's kind of hard to put the words, maybe, but it, it's kind of irrelevant whether it's one thousand two hundred or whether it's fifty thousand or whether it's ten. Like the idea is that they, the government, are about homeowners and home buyers first, and that's what they're saying. They want to increase home ownership. Therefore, any activity by 
funds put by houses and housing estates based on their own commentary is unacceptable. Um, so you're kind of, I'm, I'm not even giving my opinion here. I'm kind of hanging them on their own words. This is, they, yeah. they want to make it prohibitive. Yeah. So, and, and then not a touch apartments, which is a whole different market. Yeah, and just on that, because I, I made the point that, you know, they've said there's 650 homes, um, you know, bought by bought last, bought year. last year. But if you look at it, there was 6,000 apartments in or around, well, 6,000 homes, majority apartments that were essentially bought or developed as built to rent by investor funds, which is, you know, 58% of all the new homes built in the Dublin region. To me, there seems to be more there's there needs to be also focus on that if you're genuinely saying we want to have affordable homes or or you could spend on a way like I, I think this is where we slightly disagree on that Rory is that like I think those are maybe different cases where they are being those wouldn't be built with an argument they wouldn't be built if there wasn't the capital there from investment funds to build them. But as you said there the the spin of that on that on its head though, as you said there, if there's a large portion of any property in the capital that's been developed going through apartment sales to funds, therefore 1,200 properties being sold to investment, houses being sold to investment funds, is actually a very big portion, as you said there. Most of those are in Dublin, is my yeah. understanding. Like There's a yeah. very large number of those. So actually, it's even more important that no houses in housing estate go to investment funds in that period based on the government's own logic, because so many apartments have been hoovered up anyway. So Absolutely. Yeah. So it, 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 I think it's, it's kind of irrelevant that it's a small number. It's that it's happening at all. It's distorting the market. And it's setting a new price bar for what, what the market, yeah. what the price in the market could be. And, and just, I, I'm going to move on, Killian, to our, taking our other panelists. But the, the question that comes to mind as well is obviously, this is the one we know of. And how many do we not know of that are taking place as well? Is it yeah, and I think we, we can expect to see much more of this happen. And I, 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 I was even surprised to see it was so high as 600 and was it 650 last year? Yeah, or it was, yeah, yeah, around that. I was surprised to see it was even that high. And there's many more housing estates been built that are pre planning, that got planning permission pre 2021, so won't be impacted by the ring fencing rules. It appears in, a, in an interest rate environment where apparently investors aren't buying homes to see 600 bulk bought houses bulk bought at the, pen, at the penal rate of 10% stamp duty. Um, it clearly means that the profit is still there or it still makes financial sense to buy them at that rate. So I expect to see, we expect to see more of them yeah, in, in the meantime until the until the new rules, the planning rules going forward for any planning permission given after 2021 should largely restrict this practice. But there are many other planning permissions prior to 2021 that I won't be impacted. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to need to continue to, this isn't the end of it by any stretch. Hugh Brennan um, from Okulon, just to take you in. Do we need the investor funds? And what's your view on them buying up this estate and others? No, no absolutely, we do not need them. And um, I really can't really add very much more to what Killian has said. I mean, I, I agree absolutely with, 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 with what he has said. Um, and, you know, Keanu Callahan's point about raising it to 100%. I suspect that the reason that they pitched at 10%, first of all, and that um, Sinn Féin are pitching at a 70% is because they're, they're, they may be open to some kind of challenge in the courts that it would be unfair um, procedure or something like that. I don't know, you know. But but I agree with what uh, um, Killian is saying, the, the, the theory of it. If we, if, we, if we don't want it to happen, and the government have said they don't want it to happen, they want these houses to be made available for um, owner-occupiers or for um, rental, and preferably for affordable rental, um, then there must be some mechanism that they can use to ensure that it won't happen. You know, we were just, you know, tossing it around in the in 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 in, in the office today, and you know, maybe um, a proportion of anything that the these investor funds buy would have to be used for um, affordable uh, rental, and you would have to define exactly what affordable rental is, just like the part five in normal developments where, you know, 10% or now 20% has to go to um, social or um, affordable housing. So it, it, would, it, would have, it would have to be affordable rental, something like that. I don't know. But to, to answer your first question, no. For um, social and affordable housing, we do not need investor funds and we shouldn't be encouraging them. What we should be doing instead is trying to build up the capacity of the approved housing body sector, I believe, and um, also the capacity of the local authorities to build um, themselves. And when I say build themselves, I mean build using building contractors, small, medium and large building contractors to just to go and do the work for them, not uh, developers, not a developer where a developer decides on the price. It should be um, done at a cost plus 
basis. And then because of inflation, um, you, you need to have some kind of a sub- subsidy as well. I'll leave it there for a moment. Um, yeah, thanks you for that. And what comes to mind is we spoke to um, uh, the, the, one of the key people from Vienna around the Vienna housing model recently on a podcast. And they explained to us that in Vienna, I think it was 65 or 70 percent of all new private developments have to be affordable housing. So it's not yeah. 10%, it's 60 yeah. or 70%. And, yeah. you know, it seems to me that that's where we, we need to go. Um, thanks you for that. Ashing. just take you on. What's your view on it on terms of the investor funds, their impact, and um, what is happening, I suppose, from a tenant's perspective and housing as a basic human right? Um, I suppose I'm based out in North Dublin anyway, so I'm right beside that site in Belcamp Manor. Um, and I suppose an awful lot of our members and friends of mine had the right to buy. And that has been totally whipped from underneath them. Um, so the conversations, I suppose, coming from the ground is that people are starting to see that it's becoming a two-tier system, that we're going to have these investment funds come in and provide rentals at really unaffordable prices. Um, that is even more expensive than a mortgage. So an awful lot of members and people that want to buy are feeling really left out um, of trying to get into the market one way or another. Um, so I suppose with the investment funds coming in, all the planning arguments like like this is going to happen and this is out of reach of ordinary people. They don't really understand what's going on. They don't understand the legislation. And this is the arguments that are being thrown back at them by politicians that they're kind of like, this is too much. We just want homes. Um, so I guess when we're looking at the investment funds, um, like what he was saying, if there was a tiny percentage where it was really high that they had to pay so much and we got community amenities and facilities and services put into the area because developers are not planning on putting these in the areas. And you can see that with Clon Griffin and how Clon Griffin has been developed itself. Um, so if there was extra money to be put into the communities, but the rents were really low and affordable, a small percentage would help the market, I suppose. But the way that they're coming in, buying up the properties, set the rent rate rents really high, is really pushing ordinary people from these communities out and not being able to enter the market. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the point about the rents. Killian, you want to come back in there? And the just one thing quickly and what Ashley was saying and it's to kind of add to what it's interesting I'm not surprised to hear that you knew people in the area who wanted to buy those homes I think it, it's 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 interesting that they want if, if the fund comes in again this is where it's irrelevant how many homes they bought or how, how much they're buying those homes let's say taking the developers argument that they were not going they were not selling or that they were that the central bank rules been changed apparently made everyone jittery or go back to get more money look to get more money for their mortgage in a supply and demand and normal economic situation, if the homes weren't selling, the prices would drop, the, the price would fall, and then and then the price and that and that's how again another point where they're so broken that you have a fund then willing to come in and pay near that market price to buy buy them all and a penalty on top essentially the ten percent stamp duty. So the, the, again, that's part again the, the broken social contract of the broken nature of the property system is that even the fund even a fund buying forty six I say it was just forty six that meant the property prices didn't drop. Like those people now, like you're like the, the should come down to five, like they were going for five sixty from three bed. It should have gone to maybe why didn't it go down to five hundred thousand? Like again, I, I mean, it's because the developer would have lost money, but that's how broken the system is. The property price can't fall when there's no demand. Instead, it goes to a fund, yeah. and, and that's a really fundamental point because the argument has been made by a lot of the the economists who've been backing the investor funds is that well, this supply will bring down you know, rents, it will bring down the cost, uh, the, the price of housing. But as you show, actually, what happens is when you have more of these these funds coming in, that they can outbid homeowners. And essentially, you have this maintaining of property prices high by them. And of course, then they can charge higher rents. As Rory, well. they, they, they actually didn't outbid them. They paid less than what they would have paid than, the, than that. What a, if 46 households bought those houses, they would have spent more money on the houses. In ter- the homes were not ter- In terms well, of the price went they, they yeah, well, like the the home, the, the three beds are going for five sixty, and the four beds are going for six two five. If you take the the based on the proportion of how many four beds and three beds there were, it would have been about twenty six million, and the property the properties actually went for twenty four point five million. So so they so so, so there there you go. It's a perfect like this is like an isolated case study, perfect case study. Supply was on the market; it wasn't shifting. The price dropped, but actually, it didn't drop for the owner occupiers. Yeah, exactly. It dropped for, for yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I think it's a classic case of like 
something I've been talking about for a long time, is that this supply is not dropping prices. And here's the case. Like they, they just yeah. didn't drop the prices. Which is a fun, it's a fundamental argument, you know, and the point is about housing. And I'll bring in Alfonso in there. In terms of that, we talk about that a lot, Alfonso, this idea, you know, when you know, we've been heavily critical of the investor funds, the real estate development coming in here and challenging that idea that these guys are somehow going to make housing affordable or will provide um, housing as that we need when actually we're seeing the huge rents they're charging. And again, Bellcamp, over 3,000 for rents, like this is just madness. But that challenging that market idea, um, the idea that the market will somehow, and particularly these real estate funds, will provide a good housing supply. What, what's your view on that? Um, I think that th- there's a couple of things. The first one is um, uh, whenever it was asked of uh, the Minister uh, for Housing, Dara O'Brien, to declare a set of emergency, he very cleverly said, it is an emergency for some people, you know, uh, Basically said it was an emergency for some people, but we are not in a state of emergency. So that's a very that's a very very particular way of wording the way that the government is is evaluating the the housing situation in Ireland because they're saying yes, people are under extreme distress and they are having housing emergencies, but we as the state of Ireland are not declaring a case of a state of emergency, and I think that that's a very key thing because whenever we say you know, the government want, wants it to stop. Oh, dearly, we really wish it, this would stop and we got to do something. We got to hike the stamp duty or whatever. Well, the reality is that as a sovereign country, I, I don't, I'm not sure, but the, the, the reality is that if you were to, to declare a set of emergency, the government would have um, extraordinary powers to say, you know, we are in a yeah. genuine set of emergency as a nation. So can we actually prohibit uh, investment funds from one, purchasing housing from now until an uh, on indetermined date, and number two, can we issue compulsory sales orders for so that the housing that has been hoovered up to this point be really be compulsory released back into the market to allow uh, first-time buyers or you know uh, individual households to be able to avail of this kind of kind of housing? And I think that that's kind of uh, a, a very complex situation in terms of like governance that we need to explore as we discuss housing because. Um, the reality is that if we are not in a state of emergency, you actually can't deploy all the tools that are available to you as a state, as a political power. Um, just to follow up on what Killian was saying, which is that, um, well, actually, the first thing is, uh, Ashley, you mentioned about how people don't really understand the legislation. And I think that's a key point about where we stand in, in this environment, because one thing that I've, that I've really uh, championed, and this is why I got involved with this, is because as an architect, we understand legislation from a very basic point of view. And the best way to get people to be involved in housing and to have the right uh, rhetoric to engage with the housing policy is to make the housing policy a lot more palatable and a, a lot more digestible so that people can use the right language. Because otherwise you get into a lot of like misinformation and disinformation. So um, the, the biggest things about like this, the public is we need to make sure that people understand how to engage with housing policy in a way that it is easy to understand, easy to engage with, and easy to debate. Number two, we need to pressure the government to take measures that are at the scale of the of the emergency that this country is at, uh, which I think is, is really, really important. And one of the things that uh, actually, Killian, you, you said, which is that, um, you know, even if the funds are buying them at exorbitant prices, the, the price won't drop because there's still that ability for, for funds to come in and to buy all these homes. and so one of the things that I, that I find particularly interesting whenever I have a conversation with uh, colleagues and you know members of the industry is that as soon as you bring up the, the Vienna housing model, uh, actually it was Michaela Cower who you guys had in the podcast a few weeks ago. And basically, whenever you bring up the Vienna model, they said, well, they have 100 years. And so you know that's it. They had 100 years ahead of us, so we're done. Let's, let's deal with what we have. And the reality is that's a really de- defeatist way to approach this subject because, well, if Vienna had 100 years ahead of us in terms of how they've planned this, they had, they had to start somewhere and they had to have a really strong start. And they've now gone and actually made that jump to make sure that that step is kept in at a pace. So in terms of the provision for housing, it is about two-thirds of their housing provision that has to be publicly funded housing. Uh, and that involves even private uh, developers. So we, we need to actually make sure that 
whenever you're talking about housing, you have publicly funded housing as the forefront of any discussion. And what I find particularly frustrating as is that we hear um, you know, all these measures that are actually inflationary being championed as a solution that either the opposition or whomever whomever is trying to tear down, which is um, subsidies for investment funds, uh, subsidies for development, uh, and all of these things that are actually um, fueling uh, fueling the, the land value dumpster fire, which is how I call it. And the problem with this is that in the increase of funds that are available to developers to make to bridge the gap of viability, we're actually allowing them to keep the prices at a certain height. And when you think about like keeping prices at a certain point, you have to evaluate the policies that are bring, being brought into the fore. For example, Project Tosse, which is um, you know basically forward funding uh, developments, which is actually which is actually keeping uh supply going at any cost imaginable so that's actually not aimed to provide affordability for housing it's aimed at delivering supply at any cost and we we need to be very clear about that because when you think about the conversation that i had about housing people talk about uh the criticisms of specific policies but the government is very quick to respond to say well you're actually anti-supply or you're actually anti-housing when the reality is we are pro-affordability and we are trying to make sure that the, the the stream of housing to be developed into the future is actually getting closer to affordability for the common good, not just for supply at it, um, in its own right. Yeah, and, and I think that's a fundamental point, Alfonso, in terms of, the, again, the issue of the rents being charged by this new supply and the significance of it, because the government are talking all the time about, you know, we're going to reach, you know, uh, um, beat the housing for all targets this year. But as I said, when the majority of that in Dublin is this investor fund built to rent at rents that no one can afford, that's not actually a positive supply. And something I might bring Hugh in, we talked about before. And what you mentioned there, Alfonso, is that you can't look at the role of investor funds in isolation just to say they're, you know, they're supplying this bill to rent, that their involvement requires the purchase of land, as you see, and that adds a significant inflationary cost to housing because land is a major input cost. So when, for example, Hugh or um, a housing body or even, let's say, an SME builder is trying to buy a plot of land to build housing on, you have a significant amount of it owned by funds or funds competing with that and therefore bidding up the price of land. Um, that is a problem as well, isn't it, Hugh? It is, but and and it's such a problem that we cannot uh, compete and won't compete. So we will we will only work um, with local authorities and build on local authority land where we can get the land either heavily um, dis dis discounted or for nothing if we can. Now, it's very hard to get for nothing, but 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 get but get it heavily heavily discounted. But it's not only that. The fact that you have the investor funds and um, huge private developers, publicly publicly quoted companies um, involved, um, it's, it, it, it is actually causing the inflation to rise, not just for inland, but right across the whole uh, construction uh, mm. system. Because as Killian rightly said, um, what, what's happening is the, the, the old law of supply and demand that they used to talk about the same would control this. Um, is actually being defeated because um, the um, investment funds um, are being supported, um, and um, the um, the um, the the price that they put on the um, house is is validated by government policy, and this is the problem. And um, so we're saying that if a private developer says that that a house is worth X. The state is saying yes. We agree with you. That's 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 what it is worth, and that has contributed hugely to construction inflation in the Republic of Ireland in the last four years, and certainly since since um, we we we've become involved. And because I, I I can tell you that when we started building, we were able to build a top quality A2 three bedroom house for 160,000. We cannot build the same house now for 360,000. And like, and it's and it, and and it's crazy. Now you're not com comparing completely like with like because we did have a a service site initially, and we don't have service sites now. But still, it 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 is still um, a huge difference. And just one other example about it, that that kind of just proves that point. 
we were actually looking at a scheme in Northern Ireland uh, recently. We, 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 we were asked to go up and um, talk to a community-led housing group up there. And I spoke to a, an approved housing body who were buying uh, social housing in Uri. And they were able to buy the same quality, practically the same house that we were trying to build in Ballymont. They were able to buy that for £210,000 in Uri. You know, less than 100 uh, kilometres, or I think just 100 kilometres up the road. But in the in the different um, uh, uh, ju uh, ju jurisdiction, and it shouldn't be possible to build a house for two hundred and ten thousand pounds on one side. And I know you've got the exchange rate, and they don't have that. But still, there is a substantial difference between two hundred and ten thousand pounds and three hundred and sixty thousand euros. So having a policy where you depend on investor funds and big, la large private developers is actually contributing to inflation. And it makes it so difficult then for others who are trying to build affordably. Like, we're mm -hmm. we're constantly trying to build affordably, but I think as I said to you before, Rory, our original model really isn't viable anymore. Because yeah. our original model, in our original model, we were able to get the land at a reduced price, we got the development levies waived, we just took a 5% surplus just to keep us uh, um, uh, ticking over, and on that basis, we were able to deliver affordable housing. And there was a clawback involved for the local authority if the house was, was, was then sold on. That's not possible anymore. We now need to get to, to we could get all of those, but we still need to get a subsidy from the affordable housing fund uh, to build. And that is because of this um, exorbitant um, inflation uh, over, over the, uh, um, uh, the past couple of years. Yeah, I, I think that's a fundamental point when we discuss, and I'm going to bring, I know Killian wants to come back in here, but when we discuss the the high cost of housing to deliver here and everybody's asking, why is housing so expensive to build? As you've made the point over and over, it is because our developers, the large developers and the investor funds have essentially an oligopoly control over the market and what they can charge and the price they're charging and the profit they're extracting from it is huge. And, and that is, as you say, it's inbuilt inflationary. Their business model is to keep charging higher and higher prices. So I think that's a really important point to make. Killian, you want to come in there? Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna break my raise hand button here for Pepsi <laughs> too much. <laughs> you, but it, I I hear you say as well. I I do see that the um, the effect that the investment funds have had on the um on the market in, in land market specifically. But and I know it's maybe not the, the talk we're here for today. But it's, it's it's also worth noting like the the the, the state's own land development agency is also essentially and your ability to to get land at an affordable price itself and with some of its decisions and even sorry and even local authorities the government has decided to essentially load a bunch of state organizations with well the lda was 2.5 extra billion and local parties with tens of millions to essentially go out and buy land i mean the landmark was i'm not saying i want the landmark to tank but the landmark was about to tank based on what i understand and then all of a sudden the lda like just keen to buy private land uh, a, an organization that was set up to use state property to build housing has now been given tens of millions to buy land off developers, private developers, and it's buying land the planning permission. Hopefully, it will develop quicker. But what would the Clon Griffin site have gone for that it bought? Um, that it bought um, uh, in the recent weeks, if it if it wasn't the LDA going in for that, like, and that's why I'm hearing a huge problem from developers saying that we 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 can't get sites now because the LDA is pretty much put a, a floor in the market that it's not the price of land not going to drop again again impacting affordability because the state is coming in and essentially kind of bailing out the landmarks before and, and, it even before it even crashed yeah it didn't even the get very, to crash and the very significant issue there as well and the question is why the hell the the public sector is not compulsory purchasing that land at you know using the famous kenny report of you know existing mm. use value plus whatever uh 20 percent but what they're doing is let's say it you know it'd be one thing them buying that but then they're saying okay that means now the ch the rents we're going to charge based on that inflated land is like rents and we've seen them like 1500 for so-called affordable rental like that's and rather than saying okay we'll take that and we'll put that cost away uh, we'll now build affordable housing on that land they're saying okay we've paid this for the land therefore we have to charge rents to cover the cost of that inflated land they're they're bringing in that you know that inflated land value into affordable housing which again is is just ludicrous ashling in terms of that whole issue of um you know what people can do and you're very active 
um, you know, with Katu and Katu are doing a lot of work around tenants and supporting tenants. What do people feel they can do? And obviously, you know, we have, as we mentioned earlier, the Social Democrats, Sinn Féin, putting forward motions in the doll on this. We have, um, you know, the petition that I set up on Uplift and others. We have, you know, campaigns ongoing and your own work. What can people do um, in terms of if they want to get active? Um, if they want to get active. Um, well, first of all, it's great that there is all good policies and there's motions going forward, but doesn't mean that it's going to create that change that we need immediately either. It takes time for things to go through the process. It can become a very political point and detached from those that actually need homes and need to kind of access the market itself. Um, you can also look at kind of like what's going on with the policy change that changes every four years when the government changes as well. So it's there's no oversight and there's no kind of like we need a longer vision of more than four years because that can change immediately. And also we're four years behind. So by the time the new political party goes in, they're catching up on the past policies that they have to close down before they can put, implement their new ones. So realistically, everything is real drawn along. And I think our vision needs to be a lot broader and wider. And we need to make sure that whatever political party gets in is held accountable for ensuring that the policies that we need as a community are implemented. But how can people get involved, I suppose, is there's a wealth of knowledge. I've been to loads of meetings down in the Clongriffin um, because that's just an absolute minefield of what they've done in Clongriffin and how they're actually handled in that development. So as we talk about the LDA taking that bit of land and providing 2,800 properties that they're thinking of putting on that, you're seeing the local politicians haven't got a clue. They don't. They can't access the answers. They don't know what's going to happen. So the community consultation we're being told is going to be the next big thing that's going to be ran out to see what the needs are of the community and stuff like that. Don't be filled by the community consultation process. It doesn't include those that are actually in the area. It's those that have the money, that have the power and have the decision makings. Um, and I suppose that comes from estate management. I'm seeing how estate management companies run developments and it doesn't include the voices. It includes the voices of the developer, the heads in the council and homeowners. So you don't have the voices of the tenants and you don't have the voices of social housing being included in what's needed in these developments. Um, so I suppose um, we need to change community consultation process. Um, and we need to be more active within that. And how can we do that? We need to get organised. Um, we don't have a good cohort of organisation um, in Ireland. I was thinking about it today, actually, and I was thinking of residents associations. Everyone's like, oh, residents association is great. It does so much. But most residents associations only um, represent homeowners. They don't have tenants and they don't have social housing um, people on it. So it's not a real small amount of people once again. And then we don't have a National Residence Association organization either that's mm. going to look at the wider, broader kind of things that we mm. need. So that's why I suppose we've got CATU, Community Action Tenants Union. We want to bring people together from homeowners, tenants, social housing, direct provision, homelessness, so that like all views and voices are heard in building communities. I think we need to think different and beyond and think about change in how we want our communities to grow, how we want them to develop and how can we get there. Using the normal processes, not working. It hasn't worked. People are still going around in circles. How long has Clon Griffin been arguing for services and amenities? How long have we been trying to get Dublin City Council to take charge? <laughs> Didn't uh, one of the developers go bust, recreate itself and then get another contract and no penalties to be held for not following what the targets were meant to be. And we're going to see the same thing when the LDA announced who that developer is. Everyone's tipping around to find out who that developer is for the Clong Griffin site. Um, and we, you can bet you actually know who it is. Um, mm. The same old people as usual. So, yeah, we need to get active. We need to resource, bring all our pools of knowledge, intelligence together, our networks, and we really need to get organized on the ground. And I do think what you raised there, the whole question of what, what Clon Griffin does raise and what you've raised is that whole question of community. And I know, Alfonso, you know, when we were objecting to that development um, in the, the hindsight, it was the whole question of this build to rent model. And they said that they couldn't do mono tenure social housing anymore because it wasn't creating, creating a mixed community. Yet they're saying it's perfectly fine to do mono tenure build to rent unaffordable rental. And they should have the same, I think, point there that 
this model of you know 100% um really expensive rental yes you have 10% social housing but in reality as we said there should be at least a third available for home buyers to buy within those and they need to be affordable as well you wanted to come back in Alfonso but just asking you on that you know something that that we've discussed before and you know that I propose and others um uh, is this idea of a public construction company and that because the whole argument is, oh, we need these investor funds and we can't develop this supply unless we have the investor funds. But we could, if we wanted to, uh, build public housing. If we had a public construction company, if councils, affordable housing bodies were properly resourced, of course, we could provide the housing we need. What's your view on that, Alfonso? Um, absolutely. We can do whatever we want to. Uh, we have currently whatever the <laughs> investor funds want to. So if we if we have given them decades if we have given uh investment funds uh decades to play around with uh this entire state's housing why can't we test out uh, a publicly funded construction company that's one thing on another uh, on another note i think we definitely have to uh properly uh fund local authorities we know that for example uh uh vacant um sorry uh Local authorities basically have resources and they allocate resources to certain departments. So the department of like vacancy and dereliction is sometimes a single individual looking at entire local authorities. So they're looking at like, you're literally looking at one person for thousands of properties that need to be monitored. So we need to make sure that we're ad adequately funding local authorities so that they can actually employ the right amount of people, professionalize professionalize these departments. Uh, and, and and actually be able, allow them to take action. So from uh, purchasing homes to making them, uh, refurbish them, refurbishing them, uh, repairing them and making them available for uh, permanently uh, affordable housing. So th these are these are two areas where the government very neatly can uh, move capital towards local authorities to make them more powerful, as opposed to centralizing uh, power on housing on literally the minister for housing at turn which at the moment it is you know whomever it is the minister for housing in turn has supreme power to rule over housing however they see fit and usually however the minister for housing sees fit it's however whoever has the minister's ear and you know it's so it so happens that currently there is a direct line of communication between you know institutional property property industry and all of these like powerful lobbies that are um conveniently in agreement with the minister for housing that their way of doing things is the only way to get out of this uh, out of this quagmire um but in, in terms of like what one of the things that actually was mentioned which is uh, how to um you know instigate the change that we need to see as hugh uh, was mentioning earlier we 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 somehow happen to be involved in uh in the similar uh a, a, uh, in a project uh, years ago, me as a, as a young graduate. But anyway, the point is that Ireland is basically a village. We all know a lot of people um, and we all know somebody, uh, whether it is in Fine Gael, Labour, Fianna Fáil, PVP, we all know somebody who can get us closer to the ears of our local representatives who are from a specific political party. And this means, in my view, that we have the power to move the Overton window to let our representative representatives know that the society's understanding of housing has shifted from where they saw housing in the, two, the early 2000s. It's a completely different uh, uh, playing field now. Things have radically changed and we need to make sure that our representatives are getting, not by word of mouth, but they are getting our voices into their ears because that is ex effectively how the minister for housing in turn and all the representatives in turn are making policy they're they're looking and they're listening to those who are closest to them so why not make the effort to reach out to those who are in power now those who are closest to us now to let them know that the system has changed and and definitely um i think look i know that within two phone calls I, I can get to uh, you know somebody in Finnafall. Within a phone call, I can get somebody in in Sogdems. Within two phone calls, I can get with somebody from PB. We can all get that close to a local representative. We need to exercise that democratic ability, that 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 realistic 
uh, proximity to our communities to instigate change that we need to see. Um, because the reality is a lot of our representatives might not see the reality on the streets. They might not actually understand what it means to have uh, housing difficulties or housing shortages or anything like that because they're not involved in that. They might be representative for a completely different constituency in you know, Waterford or Cary or whatever. So they don't necessarily see the same uh, problems, but we can still reach out to them and we can still say to them, well, you know what? You might not be my representative nearby, but you know my grandmother who lives in Cary and you've known her for 20 years. And you need to hear this because that's going to get to your to the shore of your constituency in not two years, but by next week, whenever yeah. those around you are facing the same challenges that we are seeing here today. And, and, and I think the most powerful way to exercise our democratic capacity is to actually reach out, to actually find those connections and to get into the ears of our representatives as soon as possible, because it is genuinely an emergency, in my opinion. Yeah. I agree, Alfonso. And I think that um, what's very important is, you know, that, as you say, that reaching out, but that organizing and communicating. And as we have been doing over the last couple of years, whether it was around the eviction ban, you know, mobilizing people's stories, getting that into the public. And I think the other real issue is that influence and that lobbying, that heavily, heavily lobbying by the institutional investors, their influence over policy, and also that ideological belief amongst Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael that, you know, they are completely reliant on the market. The market's the only way, and therefore, what else can they do? And I think that, that it is what you said there about, but the people, the majority of Irish people have changed in their view significantly and moved. And obviously, lots of people held a view previously, but there's been a significant significant change and i've you know written about this the value shift and we saw it most recently again in the the ireland thinks poll around the majority of people saying yeah i want property values to fall and all the commentariat were like what the majority actually think that and it's like uh, you know you see how removed they are from it that yes people less and less people see housing as an investment asset you know, we've learned it is a home. That's what its fundamental use is as. And policy has to respond to that and deliver that rather than simply following what do the investors want? What do the developers want? Uh, I'm going to go to Killian and then Ashling, And then we're going to Tony's going to come in and uh, moderate some Q&A. So Killian, we'll go to you first. I was, I was, I was going to say what you said. I, I agree with you, Rory, and reiterate. You're right. The Ireland Thinks poll shows 69% of people backed Mary Lou McDonald's were, um, could call for property prices to fall to an average price of 300,000. Um, I wasn't surprised by that. I asked a lot mm. of politicians their views. Um, you've, I think they all, a lot of them changed their tune when they saw it was going to be, they thought it was going to be toxic. And that turned out not to be toxic. I think it's a classic example of how far removed a certain Kildare Street bubble is of what people's views are in the country and that they are willing to be like that would be you know, to, to be quick like that's a really really significant i can't i'm trying to sometimes i feel like i'm talking to brick walls on people that are really mm -hmm. significant mood shifts the country yeah. that is people admitting that they are willing to let the value of them their, their their net worth value fall they're willing to let their their portfolio what they own fall that's homeowners there's a huge step that people are willing to let that back and uh, fall three hundred thousand. Well, I think the people realize very clearly and because and, the whole argument, even a negative equity that you go into negative equity, what does negative equity actually mean? The value of your house has fallen, but you're still paying a mortgage. You still have your home and they realize that their kids are you know, knocking around. They're 30, they're they're 40 and they can't get a home. What's the point in sitting in a, a house worth X amount? And people, re you know, are increasingly it's their children, it's their neighbours, and seeing that, you know, the housing system is completely broken. When you're reading about nurses commuting from different countries because they can't afford, you know, to live in Dublin, to, you know, our schools, our communities, um, you know, we have to, it has to change. And I think that you're, it is that sort of change in society that forces the change in policies. And we are all very much part of that and have been part of that. Uh, Ashling, you want to come in? As she searches frantically for the unmute. Tony's keeping you on mute on purpose. He's like, no, not Ashley again. Go for it, Ashley. Um, I guess like I just wanted to come in on what Alvanso was saying. And when we're talking about the democratic structures and 
lobbying and talking to councillors. The councillors know, especially in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, they know exactly what the TD's policies are being implemented. That's why they're part of that party. But what is mind-boggling is how they're fooling people on the street when they're going around and they're taking all these clinics and they're sitting down and they're talking about, oh, Jesus, isn't that terrible that that charge hasn't been handed? I'll advocate on your behalf. Then all of a sudden they're playing people just to get the folk coming up in the local elections. We have to remember the local elections are starting. The canvassing is starting. People are starting to get involved in more things in the community for the folk. And then they get the vote, but the accountability is not held for them once they get into that position. Mm. They get into the position as local councillor, there's no accountability. They'll sell anything. TDs, once they go in there, there's no accountability for them either. And like I said, after four years, then it changes. But one thing as well, I, I think that I haven't mentioned is the banks. So I know that like we've been talking about the investor funds, we've been talking about the land, we've been talking about mortgages. There's also people that are trying to access mortgages that are well eligible for mortgages and they're being refused. So we also have to start looking at kind of what's happening there in that kind of institution as well. Why are people that have two homes already going for a third mortgage makes sustainable economical evidence proof that it makes more sense for them to sell one of the properties and get another mortgage on another fam- on a family home? There were, these would be like accidental landlords from the recession when when things went bust. So now all of a sudden they're back on their feet. They see a family home that they want to buy. They don't want to evict somebody because they're taking HAP. They're providing social housing for that family. They don't want to evict them, but they want to be able to access and have a family home as well. Banks are refusing. Good jobs. Public serving. Guards, nurses, firefighters being refused mortgages. And that's another thing that we have to start looking at. Why are they being refused to create the two-tier system? Yeah, it is a major issue. It's credit and and the whole issue of access to credit is a big issue and who can access it. The funds can access unlimited amount of credit, um, but ordinary people can't get a mortgage and and that is a big issue and how that then ties into affordability. Absolutely. I'm going to bring in Tony. Tony, in terms of um, your own long experience in financial analysis, the investor funds and where they're at in Ireland, what do you think could be done that would actually stop them if we genuinely wanted to stop them? What should be done? And that is where we leave that podcast. Uh, the full one hour, 20 minute version is available on patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. And that includes the Q&A with the people who came along live online and were able to ask questions. There's also a really interesting part where everybody talks about the three things that you should be asking to people who are knocking on your door this year looking for your vote. I'd really recommend you give the full thing a listen, but in order to do that, you're going to have to join us. It's as simple as that, patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. It is the only way we keep the mics on and shows like this going. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.